Hello everyone and welcome back to Inside Art Scroll, where the books you read and the people who write them come to life. Today we are privileged to be joined by Rabbi Ron Yitzhak Eisenman, Rav of Ahavas Israel in Passaic, and the author of a book that came out some years ago, Shul with a View. Thank you Rabbi Eisenman for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you very much. It's an honor to be here today. Thank you. Let's start off, as we often do, by hearing a little about your background, those who don't know where you grew up or who influenced you in your youth. Uh-huh. Well, let's start even, honestly, as with my name, which often gets a question. What's Ron Yitzchak? What's Ron? So uh, my father, Colonel Rachel, was born in Yerushalayim, and he comes from an old family of Yerushalmim that actually came to Eretz Yisrael in 1812. And uh, honestly, as we speak right now, I have the privilege, the schus, of my, I don't know how many people can say this in the world, my grandchildren diving in the same shul that their great, 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 great grandfather davened in. Meaning the family came in 1812, Hoshana Rabbah, and Shlomo Zalman Tzorif, he was the he was actually killed by the Arabs, the first victim of Arab terrorism in the new Yishuv. And uh, he helped build the Churva Shul. And my son lives, my son Mary is a tour guide, he lives uh, literally 20, 30 feet from the Churva. Right. In Yerushalayim. In well. Yerushalayim, in the Altstadt, in the Yer Atika, the old city. And that's where they davened. So they davened in the same shul where, um, where they davened in two, oh, 200 years ago. So, that's, uh, so my father, being Israeli, he came to America and he gave me this um, more like a modern Israeli name, like Ron, so like the masculine of Rina. So I was born in Brooklyn and uh, originally in Crown Heights, we moved to Canarsie which was probably one of the shortest-lived Jewish neighborhoods uh, in the history of New York City. It lasted from about uh, 1965 to about 1985. And uh, I went to uh, yeshiva. My father, being Israeli, sent me to yeshiva Flappish, so I would be fluent in Ivrit and Hebrew. Was, uh, was that co-ed at the time? Yeah, it was co-ed at the time. It was co-ed at the time. It was, uh, honestly, there were some fa- fantastic teachers there. Mm-hmm. Fantastic teachers there, particularly uh, was a teacher I remember who was Torres Machshava. It was the first time I was exposed to Rav Shamshin Rafal Hirsch, uh, and it was it was a very uh, inspirational experience. Actually, uh, later actually I learned in Eretz Yisrael, and I had the uh, of learning by Ravan Lichtenstein, who was the son-in-law of uh, Rav Salavechik, Zechariah Bracha. Is that a yeshiva's Haratzion? Haratzion, right, Haratzion sure. and Alon Shvut. Mm-hmm. He had a tremendous, uh, honestly, influence on me as being one of the uh, most sincere, genuine Yorei Shemayim. I've probably, you know, to this day. Uh, and uh, not that I was on number one, like in the lumbus part, but as a, a personality, as a role model, he certainly... Uh, later on, I was became a Rebbe. I learned that in Yeshiva Rabbeinu Yitzchak Ochanan for quite a while, 11 years. Who were you Rabbeim? So uh, um, I was 
Rav Parnas, I think he's a Rafu Shlema, I think he's not well now. He was, I was very close to him. Sure. And then I went to Rav Salvechik Shir. And I was in Rav Salvechik Shir until he uh, unfortunately stopped saying Shir. And from there I went to Rav Herschel Shechta. And I was by Rav Herschel Shechta. I got married and I stayed six years in their kolel. And I learned also by Rav Nissen Alpert, the Talmud of Rav Moshe. And, uh, that's, that's quite a lineup of Rabbeim, I would say. Yeah, Parksham, I was very privileged, yeah. And then actually went further because when uh, I left, I got a position at an eighth grade Rebbe at Yeshiva in North Jersey. I think now it's called RYNJ, the Rosenbaum Yeshiva in North Jersey. So I, I became the eighth grade Rebbe there. It was located originally in Teaneck. Uh, then it moved to uh, Ridgefield. And then finally, they bought a building in River Edge. And I was there for 12 years. 12 years, I was the eighth grade Rebbe. And that was, a, that was a wonderful experience. On my second year there, we moved to Passaic. We were living in Washington Heights at the time, learning the Kyle at the YU, so it was obviously you know, it was convenient to live in Bennett Avenue. And then we moved to Passaic. And as Hashem would have, have it, uh, we were living on Ascension Street, which is the exact street where the Yeshiva Gedele is. And the Yeshiva Gedele, this is, we're talking about 1989. In 1989, Passaic maybe had 200 families. So Baruch Hashem, again, I'm certainly not a Tom Mufak, but over the last 30 years, I've had this list of uh, being close to Rameyer Cern, the Rashiva shall live and be well. Initially, I only, I finished teaching by 12.45, so I was in the Yeshiva by 1, 1.15 until 10 o'clock at night. Really? In Yeshiva Gedele Passaic? Yes, I used to, his chaburas I would attend, the shiurim of his I would attend. Um, yeah, I, I, all his shmuzin, I heard all his shmuzin for eight years. Mm. So I would go to hear the shmuzin every, on Shalosh And uh, that, that had a huge influence on me too. Huge influence on me being in the yeshiva there and having, uh, and having a relationship with him. That was a major hashba, a major influence. Mm-hmm. Now growing up, going back to the years when you were in, Haaretz and later on in, in Yeshiva's Rabbeinu Yitzhak Ochanan, did you have aspirations to go into the Rabbonus? What was your dream at that point as far as being mashpia and, and, and using your talents? It's interesting you said that. I was just, this memory actually came to me recently. I, I still remember it was Parshish Tazriya Metzera. I was probably 16 or 17 years old. My mother, Alea Shalom, she was a teacher, as many... Jewish women were in the New York City public school system. It's a very good job. You're off for the summer, and even even in the short Fridays in the winter, by, you were home by 3.30. She worked not so far from Canarsie. And she had a non-frum colleague whose son had a bar mitzvah, and she didn't know who would help the boy write a bar mitzvah speech. I remember it was the haftar of the Arbo Mitzrayim, the four Mitzrayim there, three Mitzrayim. And uh, my mother asked me, I said, I'd be glad to. And Motzei uh, Shabbos, anyway, I used to have a chavrusa. So Motzei Shabbos, I sat down and I wrote him a drasha. And then I handed it in. I remember she called me, the woman, she said, I'm so impressed. On a Saturday night, you spent <laughs> writing that. You could have been out with your friend. Said, okay, whatever. And uh, 
I remember when I gave it to my mother, my mother said, oh, this is your first drusha. So, I mean, I'm not saying I, I aspired always to be a rav, but I did aspire to, to teach. I always liked teaching. Mm-hmm. And um, in fact, when I was at YU, I was more in the educational track. I mean, it didn't really matter, but to be a rabbi, I always wanted to be a rabbi. And you received actual training for that? You're talking about when you were in YU? Yeah, I think now actually it's more structured. Back then, mm-hmm. I think it was, it was structured, but not as structured. Yes, yeah, certainly. Well, truthfully, I also I was privileged also to learn from Rabbi Yoel Kramer. Living be well. I think he lives in Lakewood now too. He uh, he for Torah Masora for years. He mm-hmm. gave courses in uh, in how to teach. Right. And I took his course over the summer. And uh, in fact, there interesting. We used to go to Menorah bungalows where I was a rebbe. And Rabbi Herschel Brody should also should live and be well. He now lives on Lakewood too. He uh, he was sort of the unofficial rub there. So Diane Brody was there and. Uh, Again, I was very to become close with him. I learned with him by Chavrusa. Our families became close. I remember I was living in the Heights. I went to him for Sukkot for a number of times in Borough Park. And uh, they're also, uh, so in that, I remember one summer, they had uh, a Kramer who was giving a course in the teaching and I remember in class control. And so that also, it helped me a lot. Helped me a lot, still does, the idea of uh, mm-hmm. how to present yourself. And I try to have a, even brief relationships to have. A, uh, when I lived in Washington Heights, the Novominsky Rebbe, Rabbi Yaakov Perlow, the Colonel of Rocco, he, uh, he used to say, originally he was the Rashiva Embroyers for many years. And then after his father was Nifter, he took over the Chassidus, but he would still come Thursday nights to say a Chumashir. And there was always, they were looking for people always to drive him back to Borough Park. And it wasn't the most sought-after position because it involved trying to find parking in Washington Heights at about 12 o'clock at night, <laughs> which was... Uh, but nevertheless, I took advantage, and I, I don't regret it. A number of times I had this course of spending you know, an hour with him privately, an hour and a half with him privately, driving him you know, to... Uh, oh. yeah, so that was also a, uh, a special... Any other... Any particular memories that you have of driving the Rebbe's stories, or your Rabbeim like Rav Alpert, Rav Salvechik, Rav Schechter, and so on? So one about the Rebbe, and I have to be honest, uh, this was, it was published already in Mishpacha magazine, so, but still. Um, when I was driving him, so it's interesting, when he was in Washington Heights, he was Rav Perlau. All the Balabatim, all the Broyers Balabatim, he was Rav Perlau. I mean, they knew Dom Minsk Rebbe, but he was Rav Perlau. And when we would go, he would get into the car, and just, you know, as soon as we went over the Brooklyn Bridge, he began the Novominsky Rebbe. And for instance, and nothing was ever said, but it was understood. For instance, sometimes he would tell me he has a vart, if we can stop on uh, whatever, you know, on 14th Avenue and uh, 42nd Street, if we can stop there in a vart. So I, I understood. He never said a word, but I understood that I was supposed to. Uh, opened the door for him at that point, and to walk him in, I walk him in. And uh, then, and this happened quite often, because he had uh, many obligations, so I would stay a few minutes, and then, so, once again, nothing was ever said, but he would, 
he would look at me in a way which I understood that uh, it was time for the Rebbe to go, and I would walk over, and you know, and he would, and he said, "Oh, my, well, my driver's here, whatever," and we would go. So I remember uh, once we went to a whatever it was, a vort, whatever it was, and uh, and he gave me that eye look, and I started to walk over, and uh, one of the balabatim, I guess, wanted, was waiting to speak to him or what have you. And as I got closer, he said, one of the men said to me, here, and he put a $20 bill in my hand, and he said to the Rebbe, it's okay, the Balagola can wait, and here, go, let, him, let him go eat some cake. <laughs> and I remember the Rebbe said, he's not my Balagola, he's my Chavrusa, we talk together in the car and learning, he's not my Balagola. And the sensitivity, the sensitivity is something, yeah, which leaves a, a very big impression. In the same vein, when I was an eighth grade Rebbe, I always wanted my students, especially most of them grew up in Teaneck. At that point, Teaneck was a very young neighborhood. I, of, I often thought that they never saw a Zuckin. Never like growing up in Brooklyn, you saw Borough Park, Williamsburg, you saw a Zuckin. So I tried and I was successful. I took the class to Rav Palm, Zichronel Brocha. We went to Rav Palm, and I remember when I asked Rav Palm, can I come, I'm bringing an eighth grade. He said, sure, can you tell me how many are coming? So I said, well, there's 12 boys in the class. I'll be coming, probably one of the administrators will be coming, assistant principal, so be 14. He said, at 14, I said, yeah. And it struck me a little that he wanted to know the exact number, but that doesn't me. So the day comes and we're driving. It happened to be the school hired a from bus driver, a from bus driver, from company, a from bus driver. And we're driving into Brooklyn, and a lot of times there were trips to Brooklyn, but usually to Avenue J, to the pizza store, whatever. And he sees that we're going to Kensington, he sees that we're going over there, you know, within not the usual place, in a residential area, and he said, well, where are we going? I said, oh, we're going to Rapam. So the bus driver said, are you going to Rapam? Do you think he'll mind if I come in too? So I said, look, I, I can't, you know, I'm a guest myself, but, uh, you know, I can't stop you from going to see a Godolador. So he came in, the driver. As soon as we came in, Rav Palm said, oh, so glad you came, so glad you came. You know, I'm a little old now. Do you boys mind helping me set up the chairs? Of course, they said, no problem. I remember, besides that his house was the most simplest Pashida house you can imagine the furniture was 50 years old it stayed exactly the way it was and he started to go um i think there are two chairs in the kitchen you know squeezed in by between the refrigerator and the cabinet over there and then there's another two chairs hanging by the basement door on a hook and there's another under the couch you'll find two or three more chairs no chair matched each chair was different I remember there were, there were papers on the, on the table. His wife must also work for the public school. I remember there were UFT, the United Federation of Teachers uh, things. I remember them from my own house. And whatever we, we and Rav Palm is standing at the table. And the boys are taking seats. The boys are taking seats. And Rav Palm is standing there quietly. And all of a sudden Rav Palm realizes that there are 15 people in the room. So Rav Palm looks at me and he said, didn't we say 14? So I put my head down, I didn't answer. And at that point, the bus driver 
realized that he, he was the odd man out. He was 15th. <laughs> so he said, no, it's okay. I sit all day. I sit all day. I'll stand. It's okay. It's okay. I'll stand. I just want to be here with the Rebbe. It's, it's okay. I remember of Palm who was still standing. He said in the most gentlest, most beautiful voice, he just said, it's not okay. It's not okay. We have to get you a chair. It's not okay. And Rapam remained standing until finally the bus driver himself hopped. He, there was a, uh, a coffee table that was there. He pushed it towards the table, towards the other table. He sat down. And only after he was sitting down, the bus driver, then Rapam sat down. And interestingly enough, it made such an impression on me I've told that story over many times. I've told it over to my children many times. My son, Mayer, who I mentioned before, lives in the old city as a tour guide. Just recently he told me, often he takes people and they want to go to Gedoli Yisrael. Mm -hmm. He told me recently, I didn't want to know, and he didn't, he didn't tell me, of course, the name of the, of the Rav, but they went to a, a big Rav. And also, you know, everyone sat down, the tour, you know, the people he was guiding, the clients. And there wasn't a chair for him. So, you know, he said, I'll stand. And the Rav didn't, nobody said anything. And he stood. And he called me and he said, Ta, I remember the story you told me with Rav Pam. And now I really appreciate it. Because I felt, I'm okay. But I, I felt what it was that just to be standing, as a, the odd man out. Mm. And I felt what, what Rav Pam, how his sensitivity towards others. Mm -hmm. So there was, uh, and the same thing with, with, with the Novominsker Rebbe. That's a, a very big thing that uh, I've seen from people in the sense I mentioned. Remember, uh, Rav Herschel Schechter, we, I was in the Kurlo, and uh, honestly, on Sundays, Sundays in the June, and this time of the year, whatever, in June, there weren't always, everyone was filled on Sunday afternoon, some people had jobs, whatever. And the air conditioning didn't work. And it was a hot, hot day. It was just me and maybe another person in rehearsal Shechta. The windows were open, and everyone was learning in their, in their shirt sleeves, Rav Shechta too. And so a man wandered in. He was selling yamlokas, tzitzis, a few svarim. And he was like disappointed because nobody was there. So he they asked this guy, they asked me. Then he went over to Rav Shechta and he said, uh, you know, you want, I think Rav Shechter bought a yarmulke. Then he said, you know, you look a little old. Uh, what, what do you do here? So Shech said, I, I'm, I'm, I learn here. He goes, don't worry, you'll, you'll, you'll one day graduate too. You'll graduate too. And Shech said, okay, good, I hope so. I hope so. And so that's a, that's a, uh, that's a big thing that I try to see the to humility, up. which in, I should mention in your articles, of which this book, right here, which was published some years ago, is a compilation of those articles. In many of your articles, the stories depict a lot of Ben Adam Lachavera, humility, sensitivity, thinking of others. It sounds like many of those lessons were drawn from your Rabbeim. People who knew Rabbi and Alpert was a Anav Godom Oid. Your Rabbeim were, were, were Anavim, and you talked about Rabbi Meir Stern, Rav Pam, and others. It's definitely, it sounds like that's a, a common thread in a lot of, of the messages that you impart both in your writings and I imagine in your drushes as well. 
Yes, I, I think I saw once in the Igris of the Chazanish. So he writes, I can't quote it verbatim, but he says, you know, uh, my biggest task in life for Odanim Machmir, you know, Shalolli Grom Tsar Afilu Muat Adam. Not to cause anybody Tsar, that made a big impression on me, I, uh, that, that, that letter of the Chazanish. Mm. Especially that sometimes we look at him as the, as the person, you know, the Shiurim, this Chumrad, which he was, but he writes what he wanted, what he cared about the most was never to hurt another human being. That made a very, very big impression on me. Now, in addition to serving as a Rav of Adas Israel, you also serve as, a, I think it's called Professor of Judaic Studies at Landers College for Women. What, what does that job entail? Right. Um, so, Right. The shul is Ahavas Israel. Ahavas Israel? What did I say? Yeah, Adas. Adas? Ahavas Israel of Passaic. Right. Which can I know is a large kihila? Yeah. I think you have over 40 minyanim a day, something of that sort. Can I know her? Can you? But getting back to Lander, so what's your role there? So Lander, I I teach uh, students who are all post-sem for the most part. Uh, Young women between... I would imagine 19 and 21. And they're very, very fine students. They're interested in, in learning, and many of them professionally are going on to becoming physicians, physician's assistants, uh, physical therapists, occupational therapists, psychologists. And it's, it's honestly, it's, a, it's a, also a very rewarding experience being able to Honestly, I, I tell them, interacting with, in many ways, the next leadership of, uh, certainly in, uh, from women, you know, of a strong segment of the, of the from world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, some of them, later as they go, go on Shaduchim and this, they'll, often they'll call me. And uh, it's very rewarding because when I'm at the Ahavis Israel, when I'm at the shul, I'm Rabbi Eisenman, which, like it or not, carries a certain position with it. But there, you're right, and they may, it's a professor, it's not, but they, the bottom line, it's, he's a teacher. And that's, uh, that's, that's something that I, I, I cherish, that mm-hmm. I don't have to, uh, one of my articles, I don't recall it's in the book or not, but, uh, I remember Eitan Kobri, who also writes for Mishpacha, he called me personally about this. There's one article where I write, there's this person, I try to get close to him, but it never really works out. And then I try to find him, but it seems that there are always people around. And then I try to walk him home, but there always seems to be a rush. And he always seems to be pressured to go here and go there. I'm, I'm not even sure you know, what exactly his name is. And then I, the end of the article, until I realized that person is me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as much as I love the Balabatim, and I hope they like me, and I do love them. Very, very, I've been privileged to have some of the most precious Balabatim that a, a Rav could want. Very, every one of them is almost very special people. 
but uh, nevertheless, it, it's uh, there still there has to be maintained some sort of uh, boundary or parameter between a rav and, and the congregant. So that has a lonely aspect to it, honestly. Mm-hmm. It's a, you know. You're saying in, in teaching students, it's a different relationship. You could kind of let your guard down a little. Is that what you're saying? A little bit. I mean, I, I don't want to overemphasize this. I mean, I, I teach there twice a week. It's not like I'm mm-hmm. one of the major movers and shakers at Turo. But um, it does afford me an opportunity to, especially that I drive to the city, to leave the confines of, say, mm-hmm. where, wherever I go, to the local kosher grocery, to... It's still there's, there's Rabbi Eisenman. Mm-hmm. And here, you know... I mean, they're not going to call me by my first name, of course, the students, but it, it's, it does afford me a, a respite. Mm-hmm. And over there, your te- is it halacha, hashkafa, history? How do you choose what? Because it's Judaic studies is a very broad subject, so to speak. What, what is it that you're imparting to the students? So also there, I'm, I feel very privileged. The, um, I have a leeway there what to teach. For instance... I gave a course in the Chuvas of Ramosha Feinstein, Zichron of Rocha. So we went through the Chuvas, you know, the famous Chuvas of Chal uh, of Yisrael and whatever different famous Chuvas of Ramosha. Uh, I had there were a lot of there's Sephardic girls, especially from Great Neck, the Persian community, number of students there. So we gave a, had one semester, we did Sephardic poskim. Not just the Ravadia, of course, Ravad Yosef, of course, was a major part, but others as well, other, other Sephardic poskim. And which is fantastic for me, because it's all the preparation is, is learning. This uh, past semester, we did the, the life and the writings of the Chazanish. And that, that was especially fascinating, being that he's well known, of course, only from 1933 and 1953, when he lives in Eretz but people don't realize he was, he was over 50 when he comes to Israel, that the first 50 years of his life, he was, I mean, not totally, but he was basically a nister. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chaim Moser Gavzinski knew who he was, but he was really, uh, that's an amazing thing, how he, he himself was able to morph from, he was a very quiet, shy, a shy quiet man. He never spoke publicly ever. But somehow he was able to uh, become the Gadol Hador, recognized you know, by no less than the Prime Minister of Israel himself when he had to uh, go to one person to figure out uh, how to try to uh, alleviate some of the friction between uh, the religious and the uh, secular part of the country. Ben-Gurion went to see the Chazunish. Sure. So that's always also it's an amazing thing how he... So we talked about his life prior to Eretz Yisrael, his life in Eretz Yisrael, and, uh, and we did some of the chuvas, some of his halachic positions. I try to show them he's, he's, not, he's not just a machmir. It's not, you know, he mm-hmm. was a very sensitive person. And you know, he, every issue, he obviously decided how he learned it and how he understood it. And there are many things that he's lenient on. And so that that's also was very special. You're giving the girls a perspective that maybe they never had and may never get again. It's a, it's a tremendous opportunity. Yeah, 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 it is, it is. Now, as far as your writings in particular, I enjoy your candid style. Thank you have you. a certain 
way of writing, and obviously it resonates with people. People look look forward to reading what you write. Uh, I know many people like it because it's shorter and to the point, which is also you know, uh, a very attractive book. Where did you get your style? Did you learn it from somewhere? Did someone teach you writing mm-hmm. uh, over the years? What would you say about that? You know, so honestly, I have to admit, although many are surprised that, uh, as you mentioned before, I went to a, a, you know, a co-ed, very, you know, very modern Orthodox you know, yeshiva flappers, but I have to admit, uh, looking back, the English department there was very serious. And honestly, yeah, I, I had a strong background, honestly, in writing English there. Mm-hmm. But besides that, I never, after that, I mean, that's obviously going back uh, 45 years. I don't know. After that, I, I just, I guess, practiced. I just started writing and writing. Uh, I had Beryl Wine speak in my shul. Oh, must have been, uh, I'm, I became the rub there in 1997. So he must have come maybe in 1999. At that point, maybe we had 30 people, one minion. I don't even know if we had a mincha minion then. And he spoke, and I, he came half hour early because there was no traffic in this. So I asked him, uh, you know, what, what should I do as a rub, a new rub? He told me, keep writing, keep writing, keep writing. You'll see, you'll get better, you'll get better, you'll get better. And uh, I've tried to follow that advice. Many of your stories involve congregants. You talk about exchanges, people come to you for advice. How do you handle the confidentiality part of it? I always wonder when I read stories, and some of them are are very personal, do you alter details? How do you handle that part of it? So in in referencing another well-known art school publication, uh, I think it's called Tales Out of Shul or Tales from the Shul by... Uh, by uh, Rabbi Feldman. Rabbi Emanuel Feldman. Rabbi Emanuel sure. Feldman, who I, who I consider a mentor. Uh, I feel very privileged to be close with him. And uh, I remember when I started writing, I said, how did you write this book? I said, use names, <laughs> stories there about, I don't know, Mrs. Moskowitz, how the longest benching of the year, when the Trashchodesh and Hanukkah, you know, and Shabbos and Ritzei, Yala Yovo, Ala Nisim. So he told me right then that he, you know, men become women, women become men, names get changed. So that was basically, that's still the model I follow. There's no doubt that uh, I always tell this, there was a time, I still remember, I walked in once to the kosher grocery and someone came over to me and said, Rabbi Eisman, hey, I'm here. Maybe you can write a story about me. Can I do something that you write a story? And then my wife told me that I went to the, Svarm, the local Svarm store. There's a Z. Berman there. And I was there. And my wife told me later that uh, a daughter of a friend of hers saw me there. And she ran out because she was scared that I'd write a story about her. <laughs> so I, I, I have to you know, quell everybody's uh, apprehension that everything has changed that you can never identify. I mean, everything... It's true, the story, but the presentation right. is in a way that confidentiality is totally, to the extent, to the extent I, I wrote a story about a very moving story, which, whatever, and about uh, had to do with fertility, a very sensitive topic. And I said, often I'll send it to the person before I, I publish. 
and it's so changed around, I don't think the person themselves even could recognize themselves in it. Mm -hmm. I mean, they understood, but so in that way, yeah, things would be changed around. Now, of the stories that you've written, are, are there any one or two in particular that you would say are your favorite or that you think really packed a punch more than the others? You know, when I first started writing, it's every rov. I wrote, it was totally Divrei Torah. A Divrei Torah on the Parsha, or on davening maybe for the day, a short little, like it is, actually this came out of, originally, daily, now, whenever I can, I try, but I, all these articles appear in what's called the short word. The short word is a, a mailing list, an email list, where I send out mm -hmm. things. And um, after a while, I started to realize this. Baruch Hashem, uh, I don't have to recreate the wheel. There's so many Divrei Torah that's sending out email. I don't have to be, you know, Mosef, you know, Baltosef. I don't have to <laughs> add on. So I figured maybe I could add on different things that happened to me in the shul that I, I took lessons from. There was the incident of the massacre at Merkaz Harav. And... Uh, at that point, um, which we all were obviously extremely, extremely moved by and horrified, and I saw in the Ated or wherever it was that the Belzarov went to visit the wounded. He went to the hospital to visit the wounded. And I was so moved by that. I was so moved by his caring. It's one thing, statement, even Zaga Kapitel Tillam is one thing. But a man who's one of the you know, major Hasidic Rebbe's in the world, and certainly in Eretz Shal, took the time to go visit people who they don't identify you know, identically as far as uh, the state of Israel and its significance. Uh, and uh, he went to visit them, and that moved me very much. So I wrote, I wrote a short word. I wrote a column called "Why am I? Why am I a, a, a Belzer Chassid? Or why am I a Chassid of Belzer? I don't even remember." It was the first time I wrote something, if I can use that expression, that went "quote unquote" viral. Mm -hmm. And I got a call from Srili Besser asking if I can, if he can reprint it in Mishpacha magazine. And from there, eventually, they approached me if I would, I would. I would write a column. Mm -hmm. So that that article, I remember it moved me very much, and how um, I, I got calls honestly from that from all over the country, people. So that 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 was, I guess, for me a memorable mm -hmm. article that that made it made a very big impression. In fact, it made such an impression on me that when I went to show the next time, I, I was able to get a very quick appointment with the Belzarov. Because I yeah, found out that he they he had read it too, and not in mm -hmm. English, but he had read it too. Now, as a rav, and also as someone who has worked in chinuch, just not to belabor the following point, but we, we have you here, so it's to ask you, what's what's a good chinuch message for today to inspire youth? I'm sure that as a rav, you've dealt with questions of chinuch of parents coming to you. Some people say it's harder today than any other time in the past to inspire youth to connect to Yiddishkeit, to connect to Limanat Others will say there are more opportunities today than there ever been. 
So, you know, there are different ways of looking at it. But what would you say from the perspective of a mechanach and also a rov as to what a, what's an effective chinuch message that you would impart to parents and to educators who are listening? I would say that to be so sincerely and authentically caring and that the child or the student recognize the fact that you care about them, you sincerely care about them. We live in a time, I'm sure you've had this as well, where you can speak to someone on the phone and you can hear, sometimes very lightly, but you can hear their typing. And people call it multitasking. It's, I think it used to be called you know, listening with half an ear. I mean, not really caring. Certainly not caring 100%. And to look at someone and to make eye contact you know, and to say you care, to remember that Rav Palm, it's not okay that somebody stands. That, that story happened 45, no, story happened like 30 years ago, and I'll remember it for the rest of my life. So I think that too often in life, I mean, the, the most terrible thing, of course, is looking at your phone. It's a terrible thing. But I think, uh, look, a child or a student may not do exactly what, they're not going to be our clones. Well, we weren't our parents' clones. We shouldn't expect our children to be our clones. But that the child knows that, that you authentically and sincerely care about them, be it a student or a child, I think that's something which you can never go wrong with, which is always something which is critical and necessary. Now, there are two questions that were suggested actually by viewers. We've never asked this before as part of our program, but I think there are two excellent questions. If the Rav would allow, I'd like to ask you both of them. The first is, is there any particular safer or book that over the years, whether from your youth or even till now or something you've discovered over the years that profoundly inspired you or that you connected to in a particular way? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I will, you know, we are in the world of art scroll here, so we figured it's an appropriate question. Right. And it could be something from Sifrei Kaidesh, could be literature, you know, people get inspired in different ways. It could be Mili Da'alma, could be Mili Tikdusha. Right. I mean, obviously, in general, I guess, before anything, obviously, Mili Kedusha in its totality of Torah, there's nothing more inspiring and there's nothing more life-changing than the study of Torah, whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's as profound as even, as some people think, simple, but as profound as being Marbisedra with Rashi or, you know, or learning a Tosfos or or learning Masil Sisharim. I mean, the totality of Torah in and of itself is something which is obviously the most life-changing experience. But if we had to do specific books leaving out, leaving out the totality of Torah itself, so honestly, I, I don't think I'd be alone with saying that the uh, Art School's Rebitz and Kanievsky, extremely, extremely powerful book, wow. extremely powerful book, having the privilege of being by Reb Chaim many, many times and of spending time with her and speaking about her and through her finding about her father and my daughter-in-law's and their, their connection with her. So that, that, that book made a very big, 
impression on me. It's interesting you mentioned that, and we could check the numbers with the, with the members of our sales department here, but I believe it's the best-selling biography of all time at art school. So I guess that kind of validates how much you connected with the book. Apparently many other people did as well. Yeah, I imagine. Yeah. In a secular book, I would have to say Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, he, you know, he was a Viennese psychiatrist who the Nazis, Yamatramam, put him in Auschwitz. And while he was in Auschwitz, he figured out, you know, how am I going to survive here? And he figured out when you, and he writes, okay, he's not a Rebbe, but he said, you know, certainly a Kodesh Baruch Hu is there, but, you know, he says whatever it is, when you have meaning in life, that changes everything. And honestly, if we think about it, that's what, I mean, without hope, without something to live for, you know, life becomes, as he says, those were the people who he knew we're not going to survive Auschwitz. Wow. But those people who had that, whatever it was, a connection with the Kurdish Baruch or whatever, for him, by the way, it was his, it was his writings, his, his psychiatry, you know, and he did survive. Mm -hmm. He did survive, and he, he did write this book, which has been translated into probably over 20 languages and has sold millions of copies. That mm -hmm. was a, a very powerful book, Man's Search for Meaning. On that note, speaking of powerful messages, the other question that someone suggested asking was, if you had the opportunity to address the largest gathering of Jews that you could imagine, what would your single message be to the masses, to inspire them? I mean, just saying the... the it's working on the assumption that I'm worthy of inspiring people. I mean, so again, I certainly wouldn't ever consider myself in such a position that I would be the one chosen to, I'd be one chosen to be inspired. But I would still think at the end of the day, it has to be what a Kodesh Baruch Hu is, is a mative. To, to be a mative, to have Ava, to have love, to have love to try to, everything that Chazal said to tell us, to try to th see things from different angles, to try not to be you know, impulsive and automatic in your reactions, this person I hold from this person I don't know, to realize the complexity of people. And when you do that, I mean, to, to, to love people and to care for people and to try to do for people, that I think is the, is the most important you know, message, in, in, you know, that we could have. And I'm talking about even the most simplest things in the world. So if I may interject for a second, it sounds like that message is very similar to the Chinuch message that the Rav gave just a few mi minutes ago. Really a similar message of being mated with people, caring for people, thinking of people, thinking beyond ourselves, our Daoramas. Right? It's a very similar message. Yeah, yeah, 100%. But, but even I want to stress, you know, when you mention, like, we live in a world that, if I was speaking to the largest gathering of, of all the Jewish people, I like to look at it when I'm on the line, the grocery is called Kosher Connection. When I'm on the line for Kosher Connection, I, I wrote about him too, uh, Saul, who's one of the cashiers, 
Right now, he is the largest gathering of Jewish people that's in front of me. Mm-hmm. He is it. It's irrelevant. He, he is, is Klaus Yisrael in front of me. I tell people, don't ever be on the phone. Don't dare be on the phone, ever, when you go on a checkout line, Jew or non-Jew. There's nothing more disrespectful. You're, you're not there, this checkout man. You're not, you're not there. I'm on the phone. And you, you, don't, you're not, you talk twice and this. Get, get off your phone. You're the human being you can interact with now. Mm. So honestly, sometimes I'd rather look at the world as speaking to one person as opposed to you know, speak, having this idea of having to speak to, to many. What's the one thing we can do each time that I speak to you, I speak to this person, I go outside now, I would buy gas, that person will buy gas from, it, can, it makes all the difference in the world. Well, thank you so much for that message, which is a universal one. I'm sure it's something that all of us on our own level could learn to be better at and perfecting our Ben Adam Lachaveri and just our interactions with human beings in general. Thank you to you again for coming out from Passaic for this conversation, a special visit here to Art Scroll. We thank you, and on behalf of all the people who have benefited from your messages and your drushes and your inspiration, we thank you for that. And may you be zeichet to continue to educate us, uplift us for many more years in Yotz Hashem. Amen. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and a privilege to be here. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much.